and welcome to the Adaptation Station podcast. This is your host, Nicole. I'm a former special education teacher and currently an ABA therapist at a private center. This podcast is filled with tips and tricks for not only being the best special education teacher you can be in the classroom, but living the best life you can live outside of the classroom as well. After all, I'm all about balance. Hope you guys are excited. Let's jump on in. I can't believe it's already time to record this episode. This is my one year reflection. So just about a year ago, I left the public school setting and started working at an ABA center. At the time, I got a lot of questions and I've continued to get questions, kind of comparing the jobs, asking how I like working in a center versus a public school. And now that we have been doing this for a year, we, I say we collectively, now that I've been doing it for a year, I feel like I can update you guys But I want to give a caveat that the pandemic did happen during my first year out of the classroom, so it's very hard to compare the two. So I figure this podcast will talk about the things I really like about working at a center, some of the things that I don't love about working at the center. I'll talk about some of the things I miss from the classroom that I don't get to do at the center, and then we'll kind of summarize. So if that sounds interesting to you, keep listening. So I want to first say I really liked working in a public school, and this was one of the biggest challenges for me. I enjoyed being in my school. I loved collaborating with the people that I worked with, but at the end of the day, I didn't love what I was doing in the actual classroom. I'm a huge proponent of students having access to academics, but it didn't like passion. I'll give a great example. So many people are passionate about teaching kids to read, I think that is wonderful, but I don't love the whole process of decoding or phonetic awareness, things like that. That doesn't get me nearly as excited as taking a child to Chick-fil-A and having them use their communication device to order french fries and then pay with cash and get the change. It's just a different kind of set of skills that I love, and I just couldn't find that in the classroom. Now... I did think about looking at other grade levels because I knew if I went to high school, I'd be able to have more of that life skills. On the flip side, if I went down to uh, early childhood setting, I could have more of that early intervention. At the end of the day, I felt like an ABA center was going to give me the best of both worlds. So that's what ended up making me jump. But I want to explain that because I do miss the school a lot. And I'll talk about that a little bit in the podcast. But kind of what I just touched on, that is my absolute favorite thing about my job now is that I can take my kids into the community pretty much as much as I wanted to. Now, I could take my kids into the community when I was in the school, but it was a huge process where I had to fill out an official request with lesson plans. I had to make sure I got a bus. I had to make sure I had enough staff available to cover all my students going on the trip. I had to make sure that I had my students covered who maybe weren't going on the trip. It was just a lot of planning. And so I maybe only did it once a month maximum. And there are definitely times where we did it like once every six months. Now, because everything is done one-on-one, I can I can legitimately decide that day, let's go to Target. I have a lot more freedom. I have access to a car. I have parent permission, my BCBA permission. And so my student and I will sit down and we'll talk about, okay, what do you want to do today? And if he says he wants to make a pizza great. Let's get in the car. Let's drive to Target. Let's buy the things you need to make pizza. Let's come back to the center and make it. 
So it's just so much more freedom and flexibility in those skill areas. And I've absolutely loved that. So that's been my favorite thing about the center. Of course, with the pandemic, I haven't been able to do that in the past four months. But prior to the pandemic, so February 2020 and earlier, that's what I was doing. In fact, one of my favorite things that I did was in December, one of my clients and I did a big fundraiser for the animal shelter. We got to, and I did the same project in my classroom, but it looked really different because I was doing it one-on-one with him. So he got to go around and collect orders from people at the staff. We were making coffee mugs filled with things for hot cocoa. He got to go to the dollar store and buy everything he needed to make it. We made a stop at Target because we couldn't find something at the dollar store. We came back to the center. The next day, we built all of our coffee mugs. Then we delivered our coffee mugs. Then we took the money we made and we went to Walmart and we bought a ton of toys and treats. Then on another day, we went to the animal shelter and actually delivered it. When I was in the classroom, I probably would have had to isolate just one of those. And it probably would have been going to buy the actual things that we donated. I would not have been able to swing doing three different community trips in a two-week span. That just wouldn't happen in a public school, but I could easily make it happen in the center. So I love doing that type of thing in my center. Another really cool part of my center is I've expanded my range so much. When I was in the classroom, I worked grades three to five self-contained autism. So my students were primarily ages eight to 10. They were typically male and they were almost always on the autism spectrum. In the center, I still have students that are primarily on the autism spectrum, but I'm working with kids as young as three and as old as 17. So it's really made me expand my craft. Sometimes when you only work with one subset of one population, you get so, I hate to put it this way, but I felt like I was so small-minded that I only knew about that one world. Now, like I said, I'm working with three-year-olds. I've never done early intervention before. I'm really having to take time to learn what is typical language acquisition for a three-year-old? You know, by the time students came to my classroom, they typically already had some type of communication that was being attempted. Even if it wasn't successful, I wasn't having to be part of starting from scratch. I'm now being part of starting from scratch because we're having students come into the center who have never gotten intervention in any way, shape, or form. or their very first stop. I'm also working with parents who are learning about autism for the first time. Whereas in the classroom, my parents had usually been exposed to what autism was for six or eight years. So really big differences there that have helped me grow as a professional. So there definitely are a lot of advantages to work in the ABA Center, but there are things I really miss from the classroom as well. The biggest thing that I miss is I love being in charge. I'm a little bit type A. I'm a little bit of control freak. So I loved being able to plan everything, coordinate everything. I was a bit of a micromanager. That's not the best thing to say, but it's a reality. And I don't necessarily get that in the center. I also feel like in the classroom, I had a little bit more opportunity for collaboration. And that's just inherently because the school is filled with tons of general education classes. We don't have that same opportunity in the center. So that looks a little bit different. And then a big thing that I didn't really think about, it's not that I necessarily hate it, but it is just really different. My hours at the center are a little bit wackadoodle. (laughs) Um, So last fall, three nights a week, I worked until the center closed. So I worked until 6 p.m. I was getting home at 6.45. I don't have a children. I don't have children. That's not a big deal. But 
my nights had to look really differently with my husband and trying to get home, get dinner on the table, all of that. That just was not something that I was used to doing. I was used to getting home at 3.30. I also work year-round now, and so that was really hard when holidays came. My brother lives in California, and my brother and sister-in-law came to visit for Christmas. I didn't really think about the fact that I wouldn't get two weeks off like I always had, and so I didn't take off as much time as I wish I had. And so what happened was there was a day that my brother, sister-in-law, and husband were all going to hang out because they were in town and he had the day off and I had to go to work. And that was a really hard day for me. It wasn't a big deal at the end of the day, but I just, I'm not used to having to plan around things like that. On the flip side, it's a lot easier for me to take off leave at any time I want because every day is the same. So you know, I would feel guilty going on my family vacation to the beach in October during the school year. But now, whether you take your week off in October or you do it in December or February or June, it really doesn't matter. So I can take my vacation. I feel a little bit more freely than I could in the school system. But one thing I really want to explain as we tie up this podcast is the best way to look at my role now is I'm a teaching assistant. I'm not a teacher. So when I tell you, yes, this job is way less stressful, I'm doing way less at home, like I don't come home, I don't have a ton of paperwork to do, my weekends are free, all of that is true, but on the flip side, I'm no longer in charge and I'm paid accordingly, which means I don't make as much at my center as I did as a classroom teacher. And because I'm a part-time employee, it's really hard to have consistent income. So I remember I did end up taking quite a bit of time off during the pandemic, so I'm not going to use that as a comparison because it's not a fair measure. But I remember the week of March 13th. That's really when a lot of things started going off in the United States with places shutting down, my school system shut down, and I remember that week I had about 29 hours on my schedule that I was supposed to work. So many kids dropped out and canceled their sessions that I only ended up working about four hours. That's a huge discrepancy in pay. And this would happen. I would end up having a client that, you know, I had on Thursdays and Fridays for a total of 12 hours. They get really sick. They don't come to the center. I'm just short 12 hours that week. Now, I am able to manage that financial concern. That's one thing that my husband and I talked a lot about before I went to this job. But I wanted to put it out there because... It's an important thing to recognize if you're thinking about leaving the public school system and going into a private hourly position. Now, if you can get a full-time position, that won't happen to you, but a lot of ABA centers are only part-time positions. So you have to make sure that you have a plan if something like that happens. And then again, we do have two full-time employees at my center, so they would get hours before I would. And I understood that, but it's just an important thing to note. And my end goal is to become a board-certified behavior analyst. If I'm able to become a BCBA, my job will be a lot more stressful. It's just this weird in-between right now. But I just really wanted to explain that because sometimes I have people say, oh my gosh, your job seems like it's way less stress. I should totally quit teaching and do that instead. I definitely think if you are struggling in your role as a teacher, There are a lot of options you can look at, but I wouldn't want to just tell you, oh yeah, quit your job, go work at an ABA center, because it might not be exactly what you need. 
And I do want to say, I definitely would not have left the classroom if I was doing ABA in home exclusively. I love that I'm at a center. That was a huge component for me. But I would not have been able to make this jump if I was doing in-home only because I just don't love the in-home environment. And the last thing I want to say that really helps solidify it for me is I do want to be a BCBA. And I feel that working at an ABA clinic really provides me a path for that. So when I was in the school, there weren't a lot of people who were in the world of ABA. If you know anything about becoming a BCBA, it's a challenging process. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to acquire. There's a lot to apply. There's a pretty big exam at the end. And when I was in the school, people didn't even know basic terms like manned and tact. And if you're listening to this and you have no idea what that means, don't worry. I have a series coming out in a couple of months. That's definitely going to help. But I'd be in that scenario where people didn't even know what I was saying, where now my BCBAs are giving me articles to read and then we have Zoom sessions talking about them so I can really acquire the vocabulary and apply it to real life settings. I feel like it's a very supportive environment with the ultimate goal of me becoming a BCBA. And so because I want to dive right in and go on this track, this was the best environment for me. I hope that this podcast kind of helped you understand. I can't definitively say one or the other, I loved both jobs equally, but I do feel like being in the center helps me reach my end goal of being a BCBA more than being in the classroom would have. And that's just purely for me. You might find it different. You might find you love teaching and doing ABA at night and on the weekends. It's all about what works for you. But I know for me, working in a center exclusively is going to help me get where I want to be. You can always reach out if you have any questions. And I hope this podcast shared something interesting. I'll catch you guys in the next one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard, I would greatly appreciate if you left me some feedback. And if you want to hear more, go ahead and give me a follow. While you're at it, come say hi on social media. You can find me at Adaptation Station on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and AdaptationStation.net. It's taco night in my house, so I'm going to go have a delicious dinner and a margarita, and I will talk to you guys again next Friday. Hi, and welcome to day six of the Where Do I Even Start podcast series. Today's podcast is going to be a little bit longer, but that's because I have so much to share. The title of the podcast is It's All About That Data. Data collection is the backbone of our classrooms, but it can be so difficult to get up and running. I'm going to be honest, I sucked at data collection when I started teaching. I didn't take enough data, I didn't take good data, and I didn't track my data. So basically, I barely did data, and that's not okay. But once I figured out how to take data and how to have people help me take data, so many wonderful things happened. I had stronger progress notes, better IEPs, and more progress in my students. We're going to cover four basics in this podcast, types of data sheets, types of data collection systems, ways to take data throughout the day, and collaborating with others for data collection. So our first topic is types of data sheets. So there are many types of data sheets. If you just go on Pinterest and search data sheets or special education data sheets, you'll see so many types. I'm going to talk about four, discrete trial, ABC data sheets, fluency data sheets, and independent and prompting data sheets. And your freebie will have samples of all of these, so be sure to download it. 
For discrete trial data sheets, discrete trial is done in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Discrete trials are often very structured and have a clear beginning and end. For example, if you're working on sight words in discrete trial teaching, you'll have a set of 10 sight word cards and you would use the same 10 sight word cards in each trial. Discrete trial teaching is also called DTT and it's an evidence-based practice. It's direct instruction that provides repetitions to help acquire skills and reinforcement is embedded in DTT. DTT is a great tool to utilize, particularly if your student is struggling to grasp concepts. With discrete trials, you're gonna measure the same 10 words until you reach mastery. So some common things that you'll see worked on in DTT includes letter ID, number ID, colors, shapes, sight words, a lot of those base skills. The other type of data is fluency data sheets. So fluency is almost like a step above DTT. With DTT, we're simply looking for mastery. If a student takes two minutes to read 10 sight words, but still read all 10 sight words correctly, they're meeting the target. With fluency, we need the accuracy and the speed to be paired together. We want our students to know sight words, math facts, and more skills fluently. We don't want them to have to count on their fingers to solve single digit addition problems. We want them to know that four plus floor is eight off the top of their head. This is gonna help them use their skills in a functional manner and functional use of skills is the end goal. With fluency, we'll have a target, so reading 10 sight words in 30 seconds. We want them to get all 10 sight words correct and we want them to do it in 30 seconds. A fluency data sheet lets us measure the fluency rate. If you're finding that your student is really struggling with fluency, then you might wanna go back to using DTT for the skill. Once it's mastered, you can move it back into fluency. So that's how those two types of data sheets work together. Another type of data sheet that I use all the time is an ABC data sheet. And you heard about this one in the Functions of Behavior podcast. ABC stands for antecedent, behavior, and consequence. And again, just to clarify, consequence is not negative. Consequence is just whatever occurs after the behavior. ABC data sheets help us determine the function of the behavior and the consequences maintaining the behavior. It also helps analyze what is actually happening in your classroom. ABC data sheets seem complicated, but once you get them set up, it's so much easier to track behavior data in your classroom. I have an entire blog dedicated to ABC data sheets, as well as a blog that walks through a data sheet, and there's a free data sheet in that blog. You can also listen to episode 27 of the podcast to learn more about ABC data. The last data sheet I'm gonna talk about is independence and prompting data sheets. When we looked at the prompting hierarchy, the ultimate goal is independence. We'll utilize various levels of prompting throughout the day, but we still want our students to be able to complete some tasks independently. You can even use tasks like completing a cut and paste worksheet or completing a file folder to measure independence. When we take this type of data, we're working on the different types of prompts needed for each task. So when we're looking at the prompting hierarchy, the highest level of support is a full physical prompt. We can work on fading that back to a partial physical prompt, then moving to modeling. Once we get modeling, we can fade that back to a gestural prompt and then a verbal prompt. The last step is to fade back from a visual prompt into independence. If you see a student is completing a task successfully using a gestural prompt, you can try and fade it to a visual prompt. If he isn't able to complete the task with a gestural prompt, you might need to move into modeling. An independent work and prompting data sheet will allow you to track these areas. So now that we have an idea of some of the data sheets that we might use, we're gonna start to talk about our data collection system. 
So this is how your team will approach data collection. It's important to pair easy to understand data sheets with easy to use data collection systems. If the data sheet or the system used to collect data is too complicated, nobody will do it. So one of the ways that you can take data is digital data. Once I turned to Google Forms to take data, it became so much easier for my team. I didn't have to remember to print data sheets. We never had to worry about the student being in inclusion math and the data sheet was in my classroom. I could look at the data from home if I needed to and my administrator could log in and see the data. And that was key for me due to a very personal experience I had. I had traveled for my honeymoon back in 2016 and my administrator needed to see my data while I was gone. She couldn't get a hold of me to figure out where it was and my data collection system was a mess. So it was really stressful when I came back to have to navigate that scenario. When I had to travel again in 2018 for my brother's wedding in Spain, I gave my administrator the login to my Google form. She didn't need it, but it was a huge relief to know that if anything happened, she could just log in and have all the data at her fingertips. If you want to read more about digital data, I do have a blog post, or you can listen to episode seven of the podcast. The next type is data binders. Data binders are a great way to organize paper-based data sheets for every child. And we utilize data binders in the ABA clinic that I work in. So for this system, I recommend a binder per student. So Johnny would have a binder and all of Johnny's data sheets would be in the binder. This makes it easy to pull that one binder for a meeting. And this system works really well if you're running a lot of discrete trials or working on students on a one-on-one basis. Another way you can use data are clipboards. So clipboards are strategically placed around the room, and that can be really helpful, especially for behavior and communication data that can be captured at any time. I also like to have clipboards for my paraprofessionals to take into inclusion. For example, if my para was supporting a student during inclusion reading, she might have a clipboard with his reading, communication, and behavior goals on it. She didn't really need to worry about IEP goals that related to math or fine motor skills, so a clipboard narrowed down to that subject helped her take data. Another type of data sheet that I used a lot in the middle of my teaching career were weekly data sheets. So with a weekly data sheet, you have all of the goals on one sheet. The goal is to fill up the weekly data sheet by Friday. So as I mentioned, I really struggled to collect enough data in the beginning. I would find that I would have some goals I had 50 data points for and other goals that I had five data points for. Without getting into too much information, I had a little bit of a sticky situation occur. And as a result, I had to completely revamp my data game. And weekly data sheets helped me do this. Every data sheet had room for three data points on it. My district expected data to be collected two to three times each week on all goals. So this system helped me work towards that. I might not get to three data points for every goal, but as long as I had at least one data point per goal and two data points across the majority of the goals, I could be confident that I was taking enough data across the day. I hope that makes sense. And again, that came from a very personal experience, but once I used it, it was awesome. And the last type of data I want to talk about is data sheets by subject. And so the type of data I needed to take in my classroom varied greatly from year to year. Some years I had mainly behavior, communication, fine motor skills, daily living skills. And so this system didn't work well for those years, but the years that I had a lot of reading and math goals, this worked wonderfully. 
So if you listened to my Squeezing It All In classroom schedule podcast, I preferred to split my class into two groups, group A and group B. To make this work, I would have a group A reading data sheet and a group B reading data sheet. Group A's sheet would have all of the kids' IEP goals pertaining to reading, so decoding, comprehension, retelling, etc. on the sheet. Before I started this, I would have each student's binder on the table. And let me tell you, trying to have five different data binders open on a table with each kid's set of reading materials was chaotic. But by streamlining the system, I could have one sheet that I recorded on. And at the end of the week, I would transfer data to the individual data binders and shred one of the or shred the one pager. So this might have been an unnecessary step, but again, if I got called into a meeting unexpectedly, I didn't want to have to scramble to find that reading one pager, the math one pager, the language arts one pager. I wanted to be able to grab the binder. And again, when you have multiple goals, there's confidential information. So I can't take a data sheet to an IEP meeting and show other students data. So by transferring it, that individual binder still worked for meetings. And so throughout my teaching career, I used a mix of data sheets by subject, weekly data sheets, and Google Forms, but I wanted to clarify something. I color-coded all of my students. So each student was assigned a color, which made it easier to keep the sheets confidential. So if Johnny Martin is color-coded blue, my data sheet would say blue data sheet. The only people who know my color codes are my therapist, my aides, and my assistant principal. So this means that if any other person found the data sheet, whether paper-based or digital, they have no idea which student it goes with, and that pretends confidentiality. And I know I'll get a question about this, so I just want to throw this out there. The colors that I would rotate between were blue, red, light pink, purple, dark green, yellow, orange, teal, black, white, brown, tan, gray, burgundy, lime green, and hot pink. I wanted to list that to show that I could do this with a class of up to 16 students. And those are just the colors I named off the top of my head. You could also use numbers or letters. The idea is just that if someone finds your data sheet for your reading group and there are data points for student A, B, C, and D, they're not going to know which data sheet goes with which student. And again, that's just for confidentiality. I highly recommend it. All right, so we have our data sheets and we have our data collection system. Now we need to talk about when to take data. When there's so much going on in the classroom, it can be difficult to remember to grab that clipboard or open that Google form to record the data. And I totally get that. I was that girl. So here's some easy ideas you can do to collect data throughout the day. The first one is an IEP bin. An IEP bin is a bin filled with the materials necessary to run IEP goals. I typically don't include materials for speech or behavior because those goals typically don't need a tangible item. Again, communication and behavior data is is captured throughout the day. When I looked at each goal, I considered if I needed to to present the child with something. So if they have a patterning goal, they need to have a patterning board or blocks to use. So if I had to produce an actual tangible, I wrote it on a list. Once I knew all the materials I needed to run each goal, I could start assembling materials. So IEP bins might have flashcards, file folders, manipulatives like coins for counting money, hands-on task cards. Depending on the student or the goal, I might even have worksheets in there. The idea is that when you pull your student to the table, you have everything you need at your fingertips. When I was in the classroom, I would run IEP bins every morning. So my students would rotate between doing their independent morning work and working on an IEP bin with me or an assistant. 
and I tried to rotate tasks out at least once a month to make sure students were generalizing this skill. If this sounds intriguing, I do have a whole blog post about IEP bins, or you can listen to episode 10 of the podcast to hear more. Another type of data I used was fluency data. So as we talked about, fluency is a crucial school skill for our students with special needs. Fluency helps them use their skills quickly. A skill becomes so much more pertinent when you can use it fast. And a fluency center is a great way to get this running in your classroom, and it also helps you make sure that you're always taking data. Fluency is different from IEP bins because with IEP bins, you might have a wide array of materials. With fluency, it's typically just flashcards. This is a great way to take data on sight words, math facts, telling time, or any type of ID. Think letter ID, number, shape, color, fraction, object, and more. I do have a whole blog post, and I will do a podcast at some point, but I do have a whole blog post about what the Fluency Center looked like in my classroom. And I wanted to throw this out there. My Fluency Center was run by my paraprofessional. It was super easy for her to do, and it took a lot of pressure off of me to get data collected. I also wanted to say that during instruction is a totally makes sense time. And I just wanted to mention this because sometimes I would get so caught up on discrete trial or fluency that I would forget to take the sight word data during reading instruction. So again, that might sound silly, but when you're in the classroom and you have kids all over and you're running behavior plans and you're taking data and just so much is going on, you might forget during reading, oh, he has a sight word goal. I could be taking data right now. So make a plan for data collection. So behavior and communication data should be taken throughout the day, although making plans for those can be helpful as well. But that being said, I'm really more referring to reading, math, and similar goals. So if you can fit it into instruction, perfect. If it can go into a fluency center, that's ideal. If you can't fit it in instruction or in a fluency center, but you can use an IEP bin, problem solved. But if you don't have a time designated to take a certain type of data, guess what? You're not going to take that data and then progress notes will be due and you'll have no data points. Ooh, guys, I have been in that scenario. It is so stressful, especially if it turns into a bigger problem. Trust me, just make the plan in August. And one more tip, I had a classroom meeting book. So this book was not scheduled in my day. It's almost like what I would call like an emergency filler. So it was perfect when adaptive PE got canceled or my math lesson ended 10 minutes early or we just wanted something calming to do. So my students loved music. So I had um, pages. And so what my classroom meeting book was is I had a whole page of color ID, a whole page of shape ID, a whole page of identifying community helpers. And I had songs that went with each one. So we might sit down and do the whole book together. We might just do two pages from it, depending on the day. And the book was filled with different targets that all my students were working on. And I could get so much data collected when we used it. And I have a completely free book that you can download. It's linked in the blog and used in your classroom. We're almost at the end, guys. The last thing we're going to talk about is collaborating on data collection. Your pairs can and should be taking data. They spend as much time as you do with the students, and in some instances, they might be the only one the student has during a certain time of the day, so think inclusion. So if your student has a goal to raise their hand and wait to be called on, and your parent is taking them to inclusion for 60 minutes a day, you need data to see how that goal is working in that classroom. You're going to want to train your paras on taking data, and I cover much more about training paras in the paraprofessional podcast, but be sure they understand how to take the data. This is where designing those easy-to-understand data sheets come into play. 
Consider having your parents' paras run a fluency center or an IEP bin. I even trained my paras to take data when we used our classroom meeting book, which again helped me a ton. And it's also important to get feedback from your paras on the data collection system. Again, if it's not easy to understand and not easy to use, they won't take data for you. I had a scenario where my assistant had clipboards for inclusion, and clipboards seemed simple, but she was supporting three different students. She found it difficult to navigate all three clipboards while providing hands-on support during the fast-paced math lesson. When we talked about it, I switched to a one data sheet with all the math goals on it, and she just transferred her data to the data binders at the end of the week. This made it easier for her to collect quality data, which helped all of us in the end. And like we've talked about, we want to be taking data on goals that are tagged by the SLP and the OT. When working with both of these therapists, you can design data sheets that capture what you need. The SLP might have an easy idea for you to capture articulation data, and the OT might be able to help you design a system that gives her all of the information she needs regarding fine motor goals. I know that this is a lot of information and it's the longest podcast in this series, but I hope it helps you get started. And I wanted to say this at the end, regarding distance learning amid the pandemic, this is the only area that I can actually give advice in because I am doing teletherapy sessions. We're using boom cards to work on programs and to clarify, a program in an ABA session is basically the same thing as an IEP goal in school. So boom cards collect and graph the data for us, which makes it ideal. Now I will say I'm in this session collecting the data myself. So If you simply have boom cards completed by the families, the data could be skewed because we don't know how much support the parent or caregiver was giving, but it will help you give some type of idea of data on the goals. Be sure to download today's freebies. In addition to the handout on worksheets summarizing the data collection system, you have a couple of free data sheets that you can use. Thank you for hanging in all the way to the end, and I hope this made you feel a little bit more confident approaching data collection in your classroom.